This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. This is going to be a bit of a, a mystical episode because I don't think it's possible for us to really understand the person we're going to speak about without at least including some ideas from the more hidden side of Israel's Torah, what's popularly known as the Kabbalah. Uh, the first day of the month of Shvat marks the Yerzeit, the anniversary of when Dr. Yisrael Eldad left our world. So I've asked my good friend Zev Golan to join me on the show. Zev was a personal student of Dr. Eldad and an author of several books and historian on the underground period. Uh, he even translated Eldad's memoirs, uh, Ma'aser Rishon, uh, into English. The translation is called The First Tithe, and of course, I recommend listeners get a hold of it, read it. I think it's one of the most important books uh, one should read when trying to understand Jewish history in the modern era. Um, Zev, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. So, Rosh Chodesh Shvat, the Yerzeit of Dr. Israel Eldad, you were a close student of Eldad, correct? Uh, I guess I could say that I merited being that. Mm -hmm. I was uh, in New York, and uh, just before I made Aliyah, a, a friend of mine named Shalom gave me a, a, a book that Eldad had authored called Hegyonot Mikra, Thoughts About the Bible. And um, I had never uh, heard of the book before that, but he gave it to me to read on the plane coming over. And um, when I got here, uh, a few days later, I contacted Eldad and asked if I could meet him. And I did not know much about his uh, involvement with the Stern Group, with Lechi, the uh, underground that fought the British. Uh, at the time, I did know something about it, but not, not about him specifically, his involvement. I knew about Lechi's war against the British. Um, what I knew about him was uh, a, a short booklet that he had authored in the early 60s. Uh, it was published in English. I believe he wrote it in the 50s in Israel. And I read this a few months before I came, and the name of the booklet in English was The Road to Full Redemption. And I had uh, I was completely blown away by it and basically decided to make Aliyah. And so when I called him, uh, uh, I was uh, in awe of the man who had written this uh, very, very, very powerful uh, short booklet. And um, he agreed to meet me, and I went over to his house, and he... He looked very, very tired, and I apologized uh, for bothering him and, and uh, said if he'd prefer I could come back another time. And he said, no, 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 it's just that yesterday I finished translating the last of Nietzsche's books into Hebrew. And my awe for the man who had written The Road to Full Redemption turned into reverence for a man who could both relate to Jewish redemption and be capable of translating Nietzsche's books into Hebrew. And that was the beginning of a long a relationship of uh, friendship, and uh, to some small extent, I helped him in whatever projects we uh, we were able to work on together. Right. Now that booklet, uh, Israel, the Road to Full Redemption. This is a booklet that talks about the state of Israel not being the goal of Jewish history, but rather a tool with which to advance Israel's deeper aspirations. Exactly. I had never heard that before. I had a yeshiva education in the states, a Jewish day school. And, uh, and I'd also attended uh, classes at Yeshiva University. So I had a pretty thorough Jewish education, and I had never heard that idea before. And um, once I understood that uh, the state of Israel was not, as you just said, the goal of Jewish history, but a tool for realizing the goal, which, as can be told by the uh, 
or understood by the title of the book was redemption, was geula, then uh, it changed my whole view of my responsibility. Because if your responsibility is to help build a Jewish state, if that's the goal, and if there is a Jewish state, then there's a thousand and one different little responsibilities you can come up with for yourself afterwards and, uh, and somehow or other have a relationship to the Jewish state, whether it's fundraising in America or making Aliyah or writing letters of support uh, or, or attending rallies against the politicians or or doing any one of many different things that you can for the Jewish state to keep it going. But if you understand that we haven't yet reached our goal and you want to be Jewish or you want to participate in history, then you've really got to get involved and, and uh, join whatever effort is being made to realize the goal which hasn't been realized yet. And that is uh, what uh, turned me around and brought me here. Right. What I would say about Eldad, I think um, it's very clear from your translation of Masa Rishon, the first tithe, that Eldad grew up with a very um, Kabbalistic worldview in his youth, meaning he's able to apply what we would call Kabbalistic concepts to history, to real human personalities, to events, uh, to experiences. In my podcast on the weekly Parsha, recently I've been speaking about the difference between the Brit Avot and the Brit Sinai. You know, the Brit Avot being the Creator's covenant with the people of Israel, like specifically with the patriarchs and matriarchs, that's more focused on the family of Israel, the worldview of Israel, the values, the culture, the homeland, uh, and the only real mitzvah there, the only real commandment there is Brit Milah. Whereas the Brit Sinai, you know, once we evolved from being a family to being a nation, you know, just like a family really functions around love, whereas rules are kind of at the periphery. But when you become a nation, suddenly you need a legislative system, suddenly you need laws. And that became the Brit Sinai, the covenant at Sinai, where we received the actual Torah. And Eldad strikes me as a Jew who is very, very, very deeply rooted in the Brit Avot, in the story of Am Yisrael, in the worldview of Am Yisrael, in the homeland, in the historic aspirations of the Jewish people, to the point that in a generation when I think the majority of the Jewish world, the connected Jewish world, was certainly prioritizing the Brit Sinai, meaning the rules, the rituals, etc., over what I would call the context, the story of the Jewish people, Eldad almost took the opposite course, where he put the story of the Jewish people and the aspirations of Am Yisrael, at least in his personal life, above the actual rituals and commandments. Yeah, I would say so. I think that um, you've got a good point there. And I think that the, um, you know, there's different ways that people relate to God. And um, I think that um, for many centuries, if not millennia, the Jewish people worked itself into a mostly ahistorical position, which means a position that did not deal with the larger question of history, but rather dealt with the rules. In other words, I keep Shabbos, and so I'm attached to eternity. And so what happens around me, you know, may, I may suffer or I may benefit. I may have a good life or, God forbid, a bad life. But uh, in terms of history, in terms of the, the nations that are fighting each other or the, uh, the progress or the re regressions in history, it, it wasn't of major concern to most, uh, most Jews or most religious Jews. It, it was to various personalities who stood out through history and, and uh, tried to, let's say, reconquer the land of Israel. Those people were, uh, were definitely in history. But the majority of the Jewish religious view was not. And Eldad was somebody who um, squarely put himself with the God of history. 
not that he rejected uh, necessarily or or not. I, I don't want to I don't want to speak for him. But uh, you know anything else? But but his view of God was the God of history. Now there's no question that in the Torah, in the Tanakh, in the Bible, and throughout Jewish history, uh, for for various sects or various uh, individuals, God was always the God of history. But once the Bible ended, and once we got into the um, carrying the Torah with us as our constitution, so to speak, rather than having a, a land uh, as most uh, nations did, uh, God became a historical. And our outlook became ahistorical. And he wanted to put us back in history. And for him, God was the God of history. You know, there is a difference between people who love halacha and people who love uh, midrash or people who love studying Gemara and people who love studying Chumash. And he was definitely in the, not that, I mean, he certainly knew Gemara and he certainly knew halacha, but he was, he studied at a rabbinical seminary in Vienna. But he um, uh, was squarely in the midrash side and uh, enjoyed interpreting uh, Torah, uh, it's the Chumash and the Nevi'im, and uh, telling Midrashim more than he enjoyed going into the arguments about uh, Jewish laws. Right, but he was certainly somebody who deeply wanted and actually risked his life to fight for what the Jewish people have been saying in our tefillot for thousands of years, meaning the actual words Jews would say in the synagogues three times a day that they wanted to see happen in history. These are things that Eldad practically fought for in his life and fought to bring about. Yeah, there's no contradiction. It's just where you put your emphasis. It's where you put your feeling. It's where you draw your spiritual strength. And and he definitely drew it from Midrash and definitely put his, uh, in his commentary, his commentary is certainly more midrashic than uh, trying to explicate uh, Jewish laws. But it doesn't mean he's opposed to Jewish laws. It just means that he was his spiritual side was someplace else. And he certainly, as you said, risked his life for it. Right. And he, and he has a, you know, there, there's a part of his memoirs where he's on a bus in Jerusalem and there are some Haredi yeshiva students, I guess, on the bus with him. And they get to within view of the Temple Mount and the yeshiva students tear their shirts. They tear Kriya, which is, you know, a ritual that certainly before we conquered Jerusalem in 1967, Jews were prone to do when seeing, you know, the old city or the Temple Mount. And Eldad doesn't. He doesn't tear his shirt. And he says there that the more he feels, the more he really experiences the essence of the mitzvah, like what it's really all about, internally, the harder it is for him to perform this external ritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that uh, from a larger perspective, I think that, you know, if we look at Israel's collective soul, this idea of Knesset Israel, this kind of giant spiritual organism that shines into the world through millions of bodies in space and time called Jews, and we understand that there's this maybe revolutionary shade, this like radical shade of Israel's collective soul that shines into this world as those Jews agitating to advance history forward, whether it's the Maccabim, whether it's the Zealot movement, whether it's Rabbi Kivan Bar Kochba, whether it's Shlomo Malcho, who I know you've done a lot of research on, or whether it's Lechi or Eldad. I mean, we see that this is this, it's usually this radical minority of the Jewish people that's always agitating to advance Jewish history forward, to advance redemption. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I don't, um, I remember I, when uh, one of my books was reviewed, the, the book I wrote on Stern, one of the, the, the uh, headlines of one of the reviews, actually in a Catholic paper, was, uh, was called uh, Stern, the Man of Biblical Proportions. And, you know, it's true that Avram Stern was a man of biblical proportions. But in some sense, you can imagine these people, Eldad, Stern, uh, Shamir even, as being characters in the Bible. 
not necessarily as being the same kind of politicians that we see in any uh, normal country. Uh, you know, they're, they're, whether it's it's a question of whether a question of uh, historical uh, philosophy, almost whether individuals create history or history creates the individuals. But you see, and at the time of the creation of the Jewish state, the, the time of the of the rebirth of the Jewish people, that they um, that the, the 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 level of characters that were operating on the scene at the time, and not only on on what we would call you know let's say the right side of history, but but even you know the people who were not necessarily on the same side as Eldad, they're definitely not the same kind of people you meet on the street every day. Eldad, uh, Ben Gurion, uh, Begin, uh, these are the kind of Shamir, you know, Stern. These are the kind of generals you expect to, to have been fighting alongside King David or in the uh, Hasmonean Wars. And um, and so, uh, yeah, these are definitely the, the people who move us forward. Uh, and most of the time are rejected by the Jewish people because they want to move us forward. Uh, so Stern is persecuted and Eldad, he gets a job after after the war is over, the war against the British is over, and he's helped create the Jewish state. And um, and he's he's looking for a job because he doesn't have any money. He's been you know fighting in the underground for eight years. Uh, he gets a job teaching in high school, and Ben Gurion is afraid that he's going to imbue the students with uh, his uh, radical ideology and has him fired. So Eldad goes to court uh, and um, wins, which is uh, still considered a precedent today in Israel that the prime minister is not allowed to fire. A, a person who's even a state employee. And Eldad wins that right for the state employee, so to speak, because he's teaching in a school. But nonetheless, there's no school in Israel that will hire a man whom the prime minister has fingered as a, uh, a danger to the youth. And so he eventually gets a job editing books and, and, and translating and stuff like that, um, which perhaps, you know, was, was all the better for him. And one day he became a professor at the, at the Technion. But nonetheless, my point is that Stern is vilified and called uh, called all sorts of uh, of curses by the Jewish people when he was alive, and and Eldad is not allowed to teach, and uh, uh, it's not necessarily easy to be what um, the Israeli poet I think uh, Zalman Schneier called uh, a a bridge to the future, and people walk on that bridge and they essentially walk all over you. Right. And we see that throughout our history. We see that every revolutionary leader that comes to liberate Israel is, for the most part, rejected by his people, at least initially. Uh, and some post facto. In, in other words, uh, there are many people who, who were good people, who were good soldiers, who eventually lost. And for that, they were called false messiahs. Now, I'm not talking about a real false messiah who said, I'm the messiah and uh, believe in me and I'll perform miracles and he doesn't do them. And that's obviously a false messiah. But somebody who wants to bring redemption, somebody who wants to free the Jewish people and is looked upon in some sense as a messiah. Messiah means a messenger. Um, it doesn't mean uh, somebody who's going to perform miracles. And he's a messenger of God trying to save the Jewish people. And for some reason or other, whether he or the Jewish people weren't uh, worthy at the time, he fails. And uh, in the end, the Jewish people, and not only sometimes in the end, sometimes even as it's going on, the Jewish people calls him a false messiah and says, don't, don't follow him. Don't, don't go his way. Don't, don't try to liberate the land. Don't try to free the people. Don't, you know, let's just wait. And um, that's a very uh, exilic, a very uh, galut kind of view of uh, what, uh, what's required, the biblical view and the, um, even the view for a few hundred years after the fall of the temple and the fall of uh, the ancient state um, was, no, we have to 
we have to do it. And that's how Eldad looked at history. And, you know, we make history. We do it. And that's what God wants. And that's how uh, the Jews of the Tanakh, you know, Abraham didn't say, well, uh, I'll just sit back and uh, hope that somebody rescues my nephew. Or uh, or Moshe didn't, uh, Moshe argued with God about whether he was worthy of being the messenger. But uh, when he understood God's message to him was to save the Jewish people, you know, he didn't say, well, no, I think I'll just uh, ignore uh, God's order to me. And God's order to Moshe was the same order that God gave all of us. And uh, really no different. Uh, Moshe was in a position to do it his way. And uh, those of us like you and and I who've made Aliyah, uh, we're in a position to come and make Aliyah and do it this way. I'd like to hear your thoughts on what might be an ideological evolution a lot of people like Eldad experience. I know that early in his life, he witnessed in, I think, Lvov, a uh, funeral procession for a number of Jews within a pogrom, meaning that he definitely saw firsthand what the world was like for the Jewish people without power. And I know that at some point, maybe even if only for a short while, he was involved with uh, Zev Jabotinsky's Betar movement in Poland, um, which definitely spoke to, I think, a lot of young Jewish men and women who were interested in empowerment, who were interested in not being vulnerable. But at a certain point, I think, and I've seen this with a lot of my own friends and students and maybe myself as well, at a certain point, there's a transition to actually going from defense to offense, where it's not about trying to prevent myself from the dangers of the outside world anymore, but asking myself, what is it that my people want? What are our goals? Like, it's kind of like a nationalism that transitions from defense to offense. And I think you, you wrote this very well in your book, Stern the Man and His Gang, where you talk about the difference between Lehi and you know, mainstream Zionism at the time was that most Zionists related to the Jewish people as an object with a problem, whereas Lehi, the the fighters for the freedom of Israel, related to the Jewish people as a subject with desires. So I feel that by the time that Eldad had made it to Lehi and became a leader of Lehi, he was no longer approaching his work, uh, approaching his mission uh, from the perspective of trying to correct Jewish powerlessness, but rather asking what is it that the people of Israel have been aspiring towards. Yeah, uh, uh, Eldad was definitely um, um, won over, let's say, by Jabotinsky uh, at first. And um, Shmuel Katz, uh, Samuel Katz, Shmuel Katz, who was uh, one of Jabotinsky's biographers, he wrote an, an incredibly long two-volume biography of Jabotinsky, uh, as well as uh, many other books. Um, anyway, I, I was talking to him once, I was interviewing him once. And he told me that Jabotinsky's greatest accomplishment was having raised the uh, impoverished, uh, downtrodden, depressed Jewish youth of Europe and giving them the feeling that they were royalty, giving them the feeling that they uh, deserved respect and, and should have self-respect. He gave them self-respect. And uh, your, your words were, you know, took them from the powerlessness and, and gave them a feeling that they needed power. And indeed, all of those words are precise. I mean, he wrote a poem saying we were chosen to be in power. And he wrote another poem that I, makes, makes use of the words that I was using. And he says, if you're a, even if you're a, a hobo or, or, a, or who knows what, you're the, the son of kings. 
So, so uh, he really did exactly what Katz said. Katz considered that his greatest accomplishment, not not founding the Revisionist Party or or leading the Irgun or whatever else. Um, now Eldad was won over by that in his in his first Zionist stage. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that he he read he read Mapu's Love of Zion when he was eight years old, so he perhaps had a uh, a youthful uh, encounter with Zionism. But his first real uh, understanding of Zionist politics would have been with Jabotinsky. But then the major event of his life occurs when he's at the rabbinical seminary and he reads a poem that Ulrich C. Greenberg, uh, a poet, has written called I'll Tell It to a Child, which is about a Mashiach who comes to save the Jewish people and he gets to Jerusalem and he wants to save us and he's on top of Harabayat and the, the, the people in Jerusalem laugh at him and tell him he has to go away. They don't want him. They want to run their little businesses as they've always run their little businesses and the Mashiach circles Harabayat and flies away. And the poem ends with the poet wondering whether we won't see him again for 2,000 years, another 2,000 years. And Eldad said, as he put it, that he, his, his heart quaked as if it was an earthquake. And uh, shortly afterwards, he met Ulrich Greenberg. Now, Greenberg, a few years later, was writing poems that concluded with, I see Jews going to the gallows to fight for a Jewish state. I see them going with the dawn of Jerusalem in their faces and happy that they're, that, they're, that they're doing this. I see Jews going to jail and going to the gallows, fighting the British, raising a Jewish, sol- a Jewish soldier, no, a Jewish uh, man praised with his, his gun, uh, uh, Greenberg writes. He prays with his gun. He doesn't, uh, not that he doesn't pray with a sitter, but he prays with his gun. And, um, and this was indeed taking... Uh, as you've just described perfectly, but taking uh, Jabotinsky's uh, uh, basic message that we shouldn't be powerless and shouldn't be uh, lacking in self-respect and saying, well, what's the, what does that mean? What's the result of that? What's the practical result? And the practical result is that means that you are not dependent on somebody else. You are not going begging for a Jewish state. You're not going begging for respect, but you are a subject with desires, and your desires are to be free and to have a homeland and to liberate that homeland. And, and therefore, you take up a gun and you do it. And Eldad, imbued with the teachings of, of Greenberg, uh, gets to Eretz Yisrael and joins the Stern Group, and then writes in the Stern Group newspaper, in Lechi's newspaper, uh, a series of articles called Avnei Yisod, the Foundation Stones, which are essentially expounding on the ideas that bring you to fight for uh, independence and, and statehood and redemption. And Shamir, in his later years, said that, that essentially Eldad laid the foundation for the war against the British in these articles. And so you're, again, I'm, not, I'm, I'm agreeing with everything you said. Uh, I'm just uh, explaining that, indeed, that's exactly what Eldad did. He, he got that uh, feeling in himself and then imparted it to others. Right. He was His role within the Lechi leadership was really the spiritual leader, the ideological leader of Lechi, whereas Yellen Moore was the political leader and Shamir was the operations leader. Yes, that, that is the, um, the standard view and there's a lot of truth to it, but there is uh, a lot of overlapping that is sometimes overlooked um, in, in his uh, hesped, in his eulogy for Eldad. Shamir, uh, at the funeral, Shamir said 
um, it, it was a strange situation where he, the operations man, wanted LDOT to publish his newspaper uh, before they engaged in any operations. And Eldad, the ideologist or the uh, the ideologue, the the newspaper man, the journalist, the writer, wanted Shamir to engage in operations without waiting for any newspaper. And each of them was pushing in the other direction. And indeed, if you look at the way the um, the central committee of uh, Lehi, if you look at the um, the way they operated over time, uh, decisions were let's say operational decisions were not made by Shamir alone, uh, even though he was the man who essentially carried them out or thought about that while Eldar was thinking about writing articles. But they passed notes to each other or they met. When they could meet, they met and they discussed things. When they couldn't meet, they sent each other notes. Sometimes one or the other was in jail and the note was sent to jail. And the note would say, you know, should we, um, well, the words they would use would be a hit uh, 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 or, or knock off somebody uh, in Tel Aviv, let's say, in response to something, and the answer would be yes, or the answer would be no, and they would vote. And Eldad says in his in his autobiography in the first time, they were almost always unanimous. There was almost no disagreement about when to strike and how to strike. And I think basically that's because they kept they wanted to strike all the time. There were a couple of periods when they couldn't strike for various reasons, but generally they wanted to do as much as possible. And so they always agreed. Uh, and um, there were times when they disagreed, but nonetheless, in, in general, it was uh, he was the ideologue. He was writing the articles. But then you take Yellen Moore, who was the politician, and he was writing articles, too. And uh, uh, Shamir didn't write very many articles. I, at the moment, I can think of two that he wrote in the Stern newspaper. But Yellen Moore wrote a good number of articles, especially in the early days. He smuggled them out of when he was in detention in uh, Lachun. He smuggled the articles out of detention, and, and they were published in the paper that Eldad was editing. So there was definitely a sharing of um, responsibility. Sure. And just so listeners know, the, the Lechi, the Lechamechut Israel at this point, under the leadership of Yelen Moore, Eldad, and Shamir, functioned according to a cell structure, meaning isolated cells who often didn't know one another and uh, would use code names, you know, one code name in their own cell and then a different code name when engaging with somebody from the center or from another department, etc. Yes, it was an underground system. They called it the conspiratia, which uh, translates as a conspiracy, but uh, conspirational might be a better word. It was, uh, uh, they called it cons- conspiratia. And the, the goal was to, um, uh, as you said, to keep things secret so that if someone is caught and tortured, they won't be able to give away too much information. That system was developed by a man named uh, Tuvia Gension, who um, was one of the early members of Lehi. And when Stern was killed, everyone who remained in Lehi and, and the Stern group was terrified that his next door neighbor was a spy for the British and was going to inform on him. And Gension, Tuvia, uh, led a group of 30 people uh, out of Lehi. It broke with the movement which in one sense was damaging in that it took away 30 people. But on the other hand, he divided those people into cells of three to five people and made sure they were departmentalized, as you just described, with code names and, and such, and, and they were never caught. And when Shamir escaped, Shamir was also at the time in detention, and when he escaped, when he, when he escaped from uh, his uh, detention camp and reorganized Lehi, uh, he adopted the system that uh, Tuvia had uh, formulated for his uh, separate uh, group. So 
after the state of Israel was established, a lot of the Lehi veterans attempted to go into politics. They had the Lachamim party, the fighters party, which had one mandate in only one Knesset and then essentially fell apart. But Eldad turned to writing, to education, to trying to educate the nation to the need to keep moving forward and not be satisfied with the state of Israel, especially a state of Israel within the borders that existed between 1948 and 1967. And the journal he published at this time in his life was called Sulam, right, Ladder, taking the name from the famous story of the ladder of Yaakov that we see in Parshat Vayetzeh. It actually, this actually took place on the mountain I live on near Betel, where Yaakov, our ancestor, who later becomes Israel, he has a dream with a ladder ascending into the sky and malachim, like angels going up and down this ladder. I'm just curious if you have any insights as to how Eldad understood of this dream or understood this idea of the Sulam, the latter, and why he would name his journal Sulam? Well, uh, the, the dream as it's recounted in the Bible um, uses uh, two phrases which were critical to Eldad's understanding and perhaps the reason he was so uh, entranced with it. And that is that um, the, the ladder is rooted firmly in the earth and its uh, head or the top of the ladder reaches into the heavens. That is the way it's described in the book of Genesis in Breshit. And that was the whole point, uh, that we as a Jewish people need to be rooted firmly in the land. And yet we, as you just, just said, we are not supposed to be satisfied with having our land. We have to be reaching to the heavens. We have to be continuing on the path to redemption. And so the latter is, the, um, is what connects uh, the two different places. And it is also a, a place that is not for us to be stationary uh, on that. In other words, we're not supposed to reach a particular rung of the ladder and stay there, but rather keep moving. And so that is, uh, in a nutshell, the, uh, the explanation of the metaphor of the uh, dream of the ladder. Mm-hmm. You know, Eldad was clearly very deeply rooted in the national aspirations of the Jewish people, the things that we've wanted for thousands of years, the things that the Roman Empire took away from us. And that definitely infused the underground with a vision of why it was fighting and uh, later played its role in Israeli politics. But my question is, did Eldad have a universal vision? Did, did he see universal ramifications for Israel's redemption? Meaning, did Eldad have a clear conception of what Israel's role would be on the world stage, you know, in regards to the other nations of the world, once it achieved liberation, once Israel was free, or there was this thing called Malchut Israel in the world, how would that influence the rest of mankind? I mean, it's very clear that Yellen Moore had ideas of Israel being this revolutionary state that would fight for the oppressed and side with the Algerians and create these united fronts in the Semitic region against imperialism. But did Eldad have any universal conception of what Israel would be, the role Israel would play on the world stage, once we were free and strong enough to think about offense rather than defense? That's a very, uh, very good question. And I would say that Eldad was um, very familiar with and very taken by the philosophy of Rav Cook. Mm-hmm. And as you know better than I, uh, Rav Cook certainly uh, has, uh, has this uh, vision and, and this, uh, this concept, uh, which he explicates quite a lot. Uh, and it is indeed uh, the goal, I think, or one of uh, Rob Cook's, uh, let's say, uh, goals of, for Judaism. Um, so Eldar was definitely uh, familiar with this and definitely um, was part of it. But if you ask me, having spent many years reading 
everything he wrote. Uh, I don't think he put ever put any emphasis on that. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever explicated it to the extent that Yellen Moore did, or certainly not Rob Cook. And certainly, obviously, they went in different directions, Yellen Moore and Rob Cook. I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not so sure Yellen Moore and Rav Cook really went in such different directions, but that's a longer conversation. Okay, we'll leave that for another time. Uh, I'll interview you and get your views on it. But I think that Eldad focused uh, on the here and now for Israel. And certainly after, in the 40s, Eldad was party to Yellen in the latter part of the 40s, in the, in the end of the war, in 46, 47, 48. Eldad was working with Yellen Moore. They weren't really disagreeing. Yellen Moore had perhaps different emphases, but they were agreed that imperialism needed to be fought and, and imperialism needed to be fought in different places. It wasn't perhaps Eldad's uh, live all and, and be all, but uh, as it was for Yellen Moore. But they, did, they didn't uh, argue with each other on the pages of the Stern newspaper that sometimes it's hard to know who wrote which article because they expressed the same views. However, after the 40s, as you just mentioned, uh, Yellen Moore wanted to go into politics, and, and Eldad's view and the view of the people who stayed with Eldad was that El- Yellen Moore's party was doomed from the start because he was never going to get followers by adopting a position that was held by, essentially, by the left-wing parties in Israel already. So I would uh, say Yellen, Moore, Yellen Moore's party was probably to the left of most of the labor Zionist parties. Yeah, but he thought that we should be working for worldwide uh, liberation uh, of the working class, or it was, you know, definitely progressive, we would say. But in any case, my point is that Yellen Moore went into politics and wanted to become a leader of the people in a political sense. Eldad, as you just said, wanted to write a journal that would win people over to the idea of, of Jewish redemption. And because of that, I think that for the next 20 years, let's say, uh, or 14 years that he published a journal, in any case, he was focused on the problems of Israeli politics from, you know, what am I going to do to overcome all these people around me who don't want redemption? So in 1950 or 51, he writes an article saying the Temple Mount is in ruins, and we have to try to rebuild the temple. And he's, he's that, let's say, I don't want to, I don't want to say this in a, such a negative sense, but he's that disconnected. His head is in the sky. You know, he says, we need a temple. And he doesn't realize that nobody is behind him. That, that he's, I mean, in a sense, everybody is way behind him. Nobody is following him, uh, except for a few people. And it's he's got to educate the people first to want greatness, to want redemption, to want what we see Greenberg wants, to want to be liberated, to want all these different things that the people around him just want to rest. They just want, they don't want that. And so it, it, for, for many years, he deals with the problems of the Likud party and the Labour party and Mapai and Mapam and Ben-Gurion, and he's not dealing with world redemption. He's not dealing with that. And then comes the 67 war and, and he's, he's got to, you know, he's got to help push and we've got to, we've got to be in the land of Israel. We've got to return to the land. We've got to, we've got to deal with Begin making peace with Egypt. Is it good? Is it bad? And he's dealing with all these political issues and he doesn't get to the end goal that you've just mentioned that I've attributed in our conversation to Rav Cook. Uh, he just doesn't really have time to emphasize it. Mm-hmm. Right. Also, he was uh, functioning at a time when Israel was still a baby, meaning as a nation. Yeah. We've suddenly had a body, we're in the world, but we just have no idea what it's for. And I think that's a real contribution of Eldad, this notion that the state of Israel can't be looked at as, you know, the Jewish people suddenly reaching home base and, and feeling safe and secure again and finding our happy ending. 
but rather the state of Israel and maybe all of the achievements of the Zionist movement should be thought of as tools to now use in accomplishing Israel's mission in the world, our historic mission. Yeah, towards the end of his life, I, I was with him once and um, he had made a suggestion as to what possible platform, uh, common denominator or minimal platform could unite the Zionist parties, those parties that were still Zionist in Israel. And several of his uh, several people on who, who were, let's say, more loyal to the 100 uh, percent view that he had advocated until then were a little disappointed in him. And I was talking to him about that. And he said, listen, nobody wants anything anymore. I'm trying to just make a suggestion for what might unite some of these Zionist parties here today. You have to understand people don't want more. Um, and, and he didn't say this. And he, he was actually quoting Uri Greenberg, who said that it's in their genes. This is the most they want. They don't want uh, greatness. And, and I said to him, that may, whether or not that's true, people don't look to you for that. People you know, look to other people to come up with a political platform that might unite two parties and then, as a result bring about more movement in the direction we want. That's a legitimate thing to do for a politician. It's not why people read Eldad. People read Eldad for vision. People turn to you to know what we need at the end, what we need to strive for. And if you're not giving them what to strive for, and if you're not giving them the end goal and the vision, then you're not helping. <laughs> so let me ask you a question, because I'm of the opinion, and I know that you've done a lot of work in this field, that you know, Israel today, one of the things we need to strive for is complete economic military independence from the United States. In many respects, I think we've become over the decades a vassal to American empire in the Middle East. And uh, first of all, my, my first question, I guess, is did Eldad have any thoughts on Israel's relationship with the United States? And number two, do you think it's legitimate to say that a fighter for the freedom of Israel today would be fighting for Israel's freedom from U.S. dominance? A fighter for the freedom of Israel in Eldad's sense would perhaps pay more attention to um, cultural domination might not be the right word, but cultural influences that give us foreign ideas as opposed to having our own inherently Jewish ideas of what redemption means, of what how a country should be run, how economy should be run, what a nation is, what our goals are, what God means, and all these different things that are not really uh, being discussed in any positive sense, perhaps in a, in a in very negative sense. Mm -hmm. So you think that it's more important or it would be more important to Eldad to liberate Israel from the cultural influences of the United States or the ideological influences of the United States than the economic influences? Today, um, but I also don't think he would limit it to the states. I don't think there are very many other cultural ideas out there today. Um, Elder told me he was dead set. He knew I was working for privatization and he knew I was working for what we would call capitalist ideas. And he said he would tell me he's dead set against privatization, not necessarily because privatization was a bad economic idea, but because he was against, against the idea of privatizing. He was against the idea of, of privatizing anything. He, he felt that the national needs came first, that the country had to succeed and flourish and, and reach its goal. And the people should work for that. And, and people who focused on themselves as private individuals, as privates, uh, in anything, were not on the right track. I disagreed with him and argued with him a number of times about it, 
Uh, we never I never convinced him and he never convinced me, but we understood each other just fine. Um, so, so I think he would have been as equally opposed to any idea, uh, whatever idea you want to say. He would have been opposed to any idea that was not useful for the Jewish people. And right. he would have supported any idea that was useful for the Jewish people. Meaning Eldad was interested in us digging into our own culture, us unearthing our own concepts, ideological frameworks, perhaps even governmental frameworks, ways to run a society, run an economy, like you said. I think Eldad was interested probably in us having this post-colonial conversation, meaning Eldad was very central to our war to liberate our land and declare independence, but usually a nation that achieves independence has to then go and uh, figure out what structures, what policies, what institutions express our identity best. And this is true for a nation that was just colonized and dominated in its own land, but I would say Kol Vachomer, like even more so for a nation that spent 2000 years in exile and then had to come back to its land and revive its language and kind of start from, from minus, not even start from zero, but start from minus. So I think that, uh, that that conversation was crucial. And I think that's very much how we should look at some of uh, his work at Sulam, you know, the, the journal Sulam, uh, trying to help the nation figure out who we are and what kind of society we're supposed to be creating here now that we have independence. I agree with you 100%. I almost find it hard to add anything to what you said because you said it so, so right in my mind. Um, what can I add? I, I would say that, that in, his, in the journal Sulam, um, I think that he was not perhaps the person who, he was the editor for most of the years, except for one or two years, he was the editor. But that was not his job in terms of writing the paper. When, and he wrote under many pen names and had many articles in each edition. But he was more of what we would call a polemicist or, or something. And the articles that were, he, he did publish articles and he did solicit articles that dealt with the things that you just said. But interestingly enough, he didn't really write those. Uh, he was more interested in the ideas of Jewish liberation and um, and had to deal with uh, many other um, issues and ideas, but not necessarily how to set up the government or how to run the economy. Yevin wrote about the economy. Yevin was one of the founders of Brita Biryonim together with Allah Meir and Uitzri Greenberg, and uh, certainly a, a friend of, of Eldad's. Uh, and uh, Yevin had or has articles on the economy. And uh, other people have articles on setting up the government or on a Sanhedrin and what all these different things would mean. Eldad published them, he edited them, but he didn't write them. Shabtai Ben Dov was writing for Sulam? Exactly, that's what, yeah, that's what I'm referring to. So Shabtai Ben Dov would write about things like the judicial system or how to make the structures of the state more in line with our identity, with our culture, with, with our history. Right, right. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Zev Golan, I hope that this was a, uh, a meaningful tribute to Dr. Israel Eldad, a hero of the Jewish people in modern history. Like you said, it's as if our history was unpaused and biblical figures came back to life in the modern age. And we had giants like Eldad and many of his comrades who liberated our country from British rule. It actually reminds me, you know, I once heard, I've never seen this inside, but someone once told me of a, of a Midrash that right now we have 24 books of Tanakh. We have 24 books of the Bible, but in the future, we're going to have 25 books. And the 25th book is going to be written by Eliyahu Navi about us, meaning that when we open up the, the final Sefer of Tanakh, the 25th book of Tanakh, it'll be the story 
of the struggle for freedom against British rule and all of the challenges that came with statehood and all of the things that we have to deal with today, all the things that we might look at as so small, or as Eldad would call the mud, right? Like Eldad liked that metaphor from when the Hebrews were crossing the sea and uh, some were complaining about the mud on their feet rather than recognize the, the grand historical moment that they were living through. So all of these challenges that the nation of Israel has to go through and overcome that sometimes we mistake for mud on our feet. When we step back, we can look at these as real great historical occurrences that we're living through and have the ability to be essential characters and participants in. So, uh, so Zev Golan, I wish you a Chodesh Tov and a meaningful day and a Shabbat Shalom. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for the opportunity to, to share a conversation about Eldad on his yard side. Yeah, no, I think it was great. Um, this is Yudah Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine. Anyone interested in checking out the show notes for this episode can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 44.